Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 12, Daniel chapter 4, continued. Well, we've been exploring King Nebuchadnezzar's tree dream in Daniel chapter 4, and we're going to continue that today. Now, chapter 4 is rather unique because the entire chapter is narrated by King Nebuchadnezzar himself. So we have an entire chapter of the Bible that is the words of a non-believer. And at the same time, this fact makes properly understanding this chapter uh, a little challenge because what we have is the Lord giving a pagan king a divine prophetic dream. So the king is viewing the heavenly dream through the lens of his Babylonian theology and through his Babylonian culture and his Babylonian common understanding of how the spiritual sphere operates. Thus he's quoted in chapter 4 using non-Hebrew theological terms like holy watcher in place of what is clearly a heavenly angel. The king receives a puzzling vision of a gigantic tree that's at the center of the earth. And this tree is the focal point of all earthly activity. It provides food and shelter and security for all living creatures, human and animal. But then the visions suddenly shift to it being divinely ordered to be cut down. And this is a vision that he instinctively knows is bad news, but he can't quite figure out precisely what this bad news amounts to. His Babylonian God doctrines also assume that it's this holy watcher, this angel, who is both the author of the dream and the one who has the power to make its pronouncements come about. Now the king calls for his royal Chaldean seers to tell him the meaning of this unsettling dream, and they can't. And he next calls in the Jewish Daniel. Because the king understands that the same God that gave him the vision of the statue of the four metals is no doubt the one responsible for the vision of this tree. And Daniel is intimately connected with this particular God. Now before we read some more of Daniel chapter 1, or Daniel rather chapter 4, I want to go back some things we discussed earlier for a few minutes and discuss the issue of the geographical location of King Nebuchadnezzar's dream tree because it's said that it's planted at the center of the earth. Now the description of the tree was provided in Daniel 4 verses 7 through 9. You don't have to go there but here's what it says. Here are the visions I had in my head as I lay on my bed. I looked, and there before me was a tree at the center of the earth. It was very tall. The tree grew and became strong until its crown reached the sky, and it could be seen from anywhere on earth. 
Its foliage was beautiful, its fruit abundant, it produced enough food for everyone. The wild animals enjoyed its shade. The birds in the air lived in its branches. It gave food to every living creature. Now from Nebuchadnezzar's viewpoint, Babylon was the center of the world. Because Babylon was the capital of the world's biggest empire. His. And coupled with God's statement to Daniel that he had given Nebuchadnezzar dominion over the entire earth and that the Lord considered the king as his servant. And Daniel told the king that this was the case. So it's clear that the king thoroughly embraced that thought. He indeed saw himself as king of the world. And we have also seen that the king felt it necessary that every tribe, nation, and tongue on earth ought to declare allegiance to his Babylonian one world government. And that that event occurred. And it happened upon the dedication of that almost ten story tall golden statue in Dura, where every last person without exception was to bow down to it. Now these main story elements I've just told you about and reminded you of ought to set off alarm bells in our mind because they have a familiar ring to them. It is in the book of Revelation that we hear of a heathen one world government at the top of which is the Antichrist. And where is its capital? Babylon. And some Bible scholars and commentators say that Babylon is code for Rome, where the future one world government will be headquartered. Perhaps. But I lean more towards accepting it literally. And that the city of Babylon, which is in Iraq today, will rise from the ashes and again become the seat of world government and the center of world finance. Whatever is the case, I think many listening to me are going to live to see this come about. Now I want to point something out to you. I have a real problem when we hear commentators speak of names and places in the Bible as code. Because it was this exact thing that caused replacement theology to occur. For 1800 years, people waited for Israel to come back. And they finally said, it's not coming back. How can Israel come back? The people have been gone for 2,000 years from Israel. The Arabs completely control all that land. and Then it's been divided up first among the French, then among the British. Israel is a thing of the past. It must mean something else. Aha! It means the church. So we'll put the word new in front of Israel. The church is the new Israel. Something funny happened. In 1948, Israel came back. Exactly as the Bible said. Now can you tell me why now that that's happened, 
probably the vast amount of Christian denominations still believe the church is the new Israel. It will not let that go. It may not seem probable to us that Babylon could become the new world empire, or rather the new world world capital. I could sit and tell you three or four scenarios I could make up about how Babylon could rise again. Why not? Why couldn't it? Nobody believed Israel could rise again. And it did. So keep that in mind as you think about the end times and you hear various people's opinion about what Babylon means. I think Babylon means Babylon. And I can't say it with 100% assurance. But I do feel sufficiently confident to claim that our Daniel tree dream narrative is at once true. It happened in the past, in the mid-500s BC. But it's also a foreshadowing of an event that's future to Daniel and it's still future to us. And at the same time, it also serves as a good example of what's called an antitype. Now, an antitype is something that mimics the pattern of the divine original, but its purpose is to be in opposition to the purpose of the divine original. Thus, we have Christ and his antitype, the Antichrist, whose purpose is to oppose Christ. And whereas the divine type is made for good, the antitype is made for evil. Thus, it seems to me that the enormous dream tree that turns out to represent Nebuchadnezzar and by extension his, his kingdom is an antitype of Yeshua and his kingdom. And so at the center of his pagan Gentile kingdom of Daniel chapter 4 is a huge tree symbolizing an antitype that mimics another huge tree that is found at the center of God's kingdom. And what tree is that? The tree of life. Let's examine a few scripture verses about the tree of life starting with the first mention of it in Genesis. In Genesis 2, 9-17 it says this, Out of the ground Adonai God caused to grow every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of knowledge and good and evil. A river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it divided into four streams. The name of its first was Pishon. It winds throughout the land of Havlah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The name of the second river is Gihon, and it winds throughout the land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It is the one that flows towards the east of Asher. The fourth is the Euphrates. Adonai God took the person and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and care for it. And God gave the person this order. You can eat freely from every tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You're not to eat from it because on that day you eat from it, it will become certain that you die. 
The tree of life was at the center of the Garden of Eden, which itself was the center of the earth. The tree of life provided good food for the world's first inhabitants. It was beautiful and it was associated with the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. Notice how Nebuchadnezzar's dream tree was at the center of the earth. It provided food for the world's inhabitants. It was beautiful and it was located in Babylon on the Euphrates near the Tigris River. Revelation 22.1 Next the angel showed me the river of the water of life sparkling like crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and between the main street and the river was the tree of life producing twelve kinds of fruit a different kind every month and the leaves of the tree were for healing the nations the future tree of life will be at the location of the throne of God's kingdom we're told Nebuchadnezzar's dream tree is at the location of the earthly throne of the king of the heathen world. The leaves of the tree of life were for healing the nations, meaning the Gentile nations. The leaves of the dream tree were for the benefit of the world's Gentile nations. But then consider this about the dream tree that Daniel says represents the king who represents Babylon. It's to be cut down and it shall fall. We see a similar thing in the future in the end times regarding Babylon. In Revelation 18, 1-3 we read this, And after these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven, and he had great authority, and the earth was lit up by his splendor. He cried out in a strong voice, She has fallen! She has fallen, Babel the Great. She had become a home for demons, a prison for every unclean spirit, a prison for every unclean hated bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of God's fury caused by her whoring. Yes, the kings of the earth went whoring with her. And from her unrestrained love of luxury, the world's businessmen have grown rich. So the metaphor of the future Babylon falling is used. And it even speaks of how Babylon will be a home for unclean birds. The one world government operated by a pagan king is going to be cut down and the whole world will see it. And we're told in Daniel 4.11 that the branches that at one time were home for birds won't be suitable for birds' nests because all the tree leaves will be stripped away. Revelation 18, 9-12 The kings of the earth who went whoring with her and shared her luxury will sob and wail over her when they see the smoke as she burns. Standing at a distance for fear of her torment, they will say, Oh no, the great city Babylon, the mighty city, in a single hour your judgment has come. The world's businessmen will weep and mourn over her because no one is buying their merchandise anymore. Stocks of gold and silver, gems and pearls, 
fine linen and purple, silk and scarlet, rare woods, ivory goods, all kinds of things made of scented wood and brass and iron and marble. So just as for Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom of Babylon, when it's just merrily humming along, everything seems to be going so well. This dream tree that is the source of false life, false prosperity, false security for the world gets divinely cut down. So will it come as a great and terrifying shock when in the future Babylon falls again just when everything seems to be going great. Babylon will rise again as the pagan Gentile center of the world. It will be the center of human government, the center of wealth and commerce. New York's time is short. In the dream tree, we get a pattern, we get a type that's going to be repeated in the latter days that are just ahead of us. But the city of Babylon itself is also an anti-type to Jerusalem. Because whereas Babylon is the secular humanist capital of the world, the economic and the one world human government capital of the world, Jerusalem is the spiritual capital of the world. The redemption capital of the world. And the capital of God's kingdom on earth where our Messiah shall reign forever. So now we see some of the connections appear between Daniel and our future which is expressed in the events from the past. And we see how the book of Revelation is dependent upon how it's interconnected with the book of Daniel. Not only for its prophetic revelations, but also for its prophetic imagery. For its prophetic symbolism. Let's read a little bit more of Daniel chapter 4. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. We're going to start at verse 20, so that's on page 1104, if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Now the king saw a holy watcher coming down from heaven who said, Cut down the tree, destroy it. But leave the stump with its roots in the ground, with a band of iron and bronze in the lush grass of the countryside. Let him be drenched with dew from the sky and share the lot of wild animals until seven seasons pass over him. This is the interpretation, your majesty, and it is the decree of the Most High that has come upon my lord the king. You will be driven from human society. You will live with the wild animals. You will be made to eat grass like an ox, be drenched with dew from the sky as seven seasons pass over you until you learn that the Most High rules in the human kingdom and He gives it to whomever He please. 
But since it was ordered to leave the stump of the tree with your roots, with its roots, your kingdom will be kept for you until you have learned that heaven rules everything. Therefore, your majesty, please take my advice. Break with your sins by replacing them with acts of charity. Break with your crimes by showing mercy to the poor. This may extend the time of your prosperity. And all of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babel, the king said, Oh, Babel the Great, I built it as a royal residence of, by my power and force to enhance the glory of my majesty. No sooner had the king spoken those words when a voice came down from heaven, King Nebuchadnezzar, these words are for you. The kingdom has left you. You will be driven from human society. You will live with the wild animals. You will be made to eat grass like an ox, be drenched with dew from the sky, as seven seasons pass over you until you learn that the Most High rules in the human kingdom. He gives it to whomever He pleases. And within the hour that word was fulfilled, Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers, his nails like bird's claws. And when this period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes towards heaven. My understanding came back to me. And I blessed the Most High. And I praised and gave honor to Him who lives forever. For His rulership is everlasting. His kingdom endures throughout all generations. All who live on earth are counted as nothing. He does what He wishes with the army of heaven. And with those living on earth, no one can hold back His hand or ask Him, What are you doing? It was at that moment that my understanding came back to me. And for the sake of the glory of my kingdom, <clears throat> my majesty and splendor also came back to me and my advisors and lords sought me out. I was reestablished in my kingdom and to my previous greatness even more was added. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and honor the King of Heaven. For all of His works are truth, His ways are just, and He can humble those who walk in pride. We learn that since the dream tree was Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom, then the remaining tree stump <clears throat> represents the still living but diminished kingdom of Babylon. <clears throat> sorry, and it's also a remnant of the king's rule. And this is why in earlier verses the tree stump is called He and His. But then in verse 21 we find that the means of the king's fall is that he is going to be driven from human society. He's going to take on the nature of a beast of the fields. He will live like an ox eating grass, being drenched with rain, and this is going to go on for seven units of time. We're not told what unit of time is being contemplated. Is each unit a year? Is it a month? Is it a season? We don't know. But the king will remain in this diminished capacity with the mind and the nature of an animal until he learns that the Most High, the Elay, 
rules over the entire human kingdom. So this isn't necessarily speaking of the animal kingdom or the plant kingdom. And the Most High says he'll give dominion over it to whoever he pleases. Now notice that the name of the Elay, the Most High, is again left out. Nebuchadnezzar is quoting Daniel here. And either this is precisely what Daniel said, that's probably that's the most likely, I think, or it's how Nebuchadnezzar heard it. That is, he was filtering it through the lens of his pagan worldview. So at this point, as the king listens to Daniel, he can continue making his own determination as to exactly which God it is that occupies the position of the Most High. And what we will see as time goes on, however, is that as much as the king respects Daniel's God, he still doesn't understand Jehovah's attributes and he sure doesn't acknowledge his name. And verse 24 has created all sorts of problems in centuries past. And the residue of those problems still clogs the arteries of many doctrines within the modern institutional church. The problem is that when Daniel says that if the king is wise, he will stop sinning and instead do acts of charity and stop with his crimes and instead show mercy to the poor, some are convinced that what Daniel is preaching is an Old Testament work-your-way-to-salvation doctrine. Which, by the way, is an oxymoron because there is no such doctrine in the Bible. It doesn't exist. And that reasoning comes mainly because of what seems like an intentional mistranslation that was used in the Septuagint, the Greek Bible version. Here is that Septuagint translation of Daniel 4.27. It says, Therefore, O king, let my counsel please thee and atone for thy sins by alms and thine inequities by compassion on the poor, it may be God will be long-suffering to thy trespasses. Now, I don't know if you caught that mistranslation. Here it implies that the king's sins can be atoned for by giving alms, by showing compassion to the poor. And if the king does this, the idea is, then God will be patient and he'll look away from the king's past sins. Now the Vulgate, which is the Latin Bible, a lot of early church fathers, Theodosian, and a number of rabbis, therefore translate this passage to read, Therefore redeem your sins by well-doing. Buy your freedom from your sins with charity. And what this gives us is a works righteousness meaning that's hung around the necks of the Jews and the Hebrew Bible. However, the Aramaic original uses the word perach, perach, which means to break away from or to tear away from your sins. It in no way means to atone or to redeem for sins. 
So the idea is to quit sinning and to instead become charitable and kind. But not that doing so is how the king might atone or how the king might be redeemed for his trespasses against God. Even so, the concept of God giving mankind, uh, rather, God judging mankind according to our, our, our deeds is front and center. But also is the idea that if we will repent from our sins, the just punishment due us for those sins might be averted, even if it's only for a time. And this is not a new concept that's found only in the book of Daniel. Listen to the word of the Lord as given to the prophet Jeremiah that precisely deals with this concept. Jeremiah 18, 5 through 11 says this. Then the word of Adonai came to me, house of Israel, can't I deal with you as the potter deals with his clay? Says Adonai. Look, you house of Israel, You are the same in my hand as is the clay in a potter's hand. At one time I may speak about uprooting, breaking down, and destroying a nation or a kingdom. But if that nation turns from their evil, evil, which prompted me to speak against them, then I relent concerning the disaster I had planned to inflict on it. Similarly, at another time, I might speak about building and planting a nation or a kingdom, but if it behaves wickedly from my perspective and doesn't listen to what I say, then I change my mind. I don't do the good I said I would do that would have helped it. So now, tell the people of Judah those living in Jerusalem, that this is what Adonai says. I am designing disaster for you. I'm working out my plan against you. So turn, each of you, from his evil ways. Improve your conduct and your actions. Here's another famous example that speaks to this issue of turning from our sins, doing what is right, and then the Lord possibly relenting on His judgment that He's decided upon us. This comes from Jonah. I'm going to read to you the entire third chapter. It's very short. Jonah chapter 3. The word of Adonai came to Jonah a second time. Set out for the great city of Nineveh, Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I'll give to you. So Jonah set out and went to Nineveh as Adonai had said. And now Nineveh was such a large city, it took three days just to cross it. Jonah began his entry into the city and had finished only his first day of proclaiming, in 40 days Nineveh will be overthrown. When the people of Nineveh believed God, they proclaimed a fast. They put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. And when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, took off his robe, and he put on sackcloth and sat in ashes. He, he then had this proclamation made throughout Nineveh. By decree of the king and his nobles, no person, animal, herd, or flock is to put anything in his mouth. They are neither to eat nor drink water. 
They must be covered with sackcloth, both people and animals. They are to cry out to God with all their might. Let each of them turn from his evil ways and from the violence they practice. Who knows? Maybe God will change his mind, relent, turn from his fierce anger, and then we won't perish. And when God saw by their deeds that they had turned from their evil way, he relented. And he did not bring on them the punishment he had threatened. So if you want hope for a lost family member, for your community, for your nation, a nation that's currently redefining morality in a secular humanist way, maybe even if you're backslidden self is starting to wonder about things. This is your point of hope. If you are a sinner, step one, believe God. Not believe in God, because James points out that even the demons do that. Step two, sincerely repent and confess. Step three, change your path and your ways. Not just how you feel. And then maybe, maybe, in His sovereign will, God will not punish you. Or perhaps He'll postpone it. That's not for us to know or to choose. Rather, in faith... We end our trespassing. We begin to do what is right in God's eyes and then let the chips fall where they may. Any other attitude on our part simply proves that we haven't sincerely repented and we sure don't trust God. Rather, what we are really seeking is only better circumstances for ourselves, which is a very self-centered motive. Verse 25 now puts it bluntly. All of this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. But verses 26 and 27 explain why God's threatened judgment upon him happened. Because 12 months after hearing Daniel's prophetic message of judgment, tempered with a ray of hope, if the king changed... Nebuchadnezzar had essentially decided to just continue on in the same path. So one day, he was walking on the rooftop of his lavish palace and pride overcame him. There could be no more perfect illustration of one of Solomon's most apt proverbs than Nebuchadnezzar. Proverbs 16.18 Pride goes before destruction. Arrogance before failure. And looking admiringly upon the amazing metropolis that was Babylon, the king credited himself for it. Basking in the glory of the work of his own hands, of his intelligence, of his cunning, he complimented himself profusely for everything that lay before him. Essentially, he defied God in not such a different way that Nimrod did when he climbed up the Tower of Babel and shot an arrow towards the heavens and dared God to do anything about it. 
Well, in both cases, the Lord took up the challenge. And the outcome was one-sided. And verse 29 repeats the consequences of Nebuchadnezzar's hardness of heart towards Jehovah. And verse 30 says that immediately the promise, uh, promised punishment happened. The question that begs is exactly what is it that happened to him? I mean, did he turn into some type of an animal? It's nearly unanimous that what is being described is mental illness. The king went mad. Some commentators go so far as to give a modern name to the condition that the king suffered. Lycanthropy. It's a very well documented but rare type of mental illness whereby a person literally thinks of him or herself as being changed into an animal and so behaves like one. This sort of thing was documented as a medical condition by a Greek doctor back in the 4th century AD. Was this what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? Possibly. And from our 21st century vantage point, it's probably the best explanation of it. Not surprisingly, the school of Bible criticism offers this matter as perhaps the best example in Daniel of its sheer fantasy. Another reason, they say, is because no other ancient writing has ever been found that corroborates the biblical claim of Nebuchadnezzar's sudden insanity. However, is that really the case? Let's spend a few minutes with this to end today's lesson. Because with some effort and research, it's not that hard to reveal the secular human nonsense concerning the book of Daniel that has sought for well over a century to disguise itself as intellectually honest Christian Bible commentary. The church father, Eusebius, who was the bishop of the church in Caesarea Maritima, many of you have been there, in the Holy Land, wrote a quotation in his famous work called Preparations for the Gospel. And this quote was taken from a fellow named uh, Abidenos. Abidenos. Now, Abidenos was a pagan. He was a respected Greek historian who is most known for his work titled A History of the Chaldeans and the Assyrians. He, was, he wrote that work late in the second century. Now here is what he says was known about Nebuchadnezzar and this incident of his sudden disappearance. Now remember, this was Babylonian history that he was citing. This is not coming from a biblical source. This is coming from, these are the words, the quoted words of a pagan. Okay. And afterwards, the Chaldeans say, he went up to his palace and be becoming possessed by some god or another, he uttered the following speech. O men of Babylon, I, Nebuchadnezzar, here foretell you of a coming calamity, which neither Belus, my ancestor, nor Queen Beltus are able to persuade the fates to avert. There will come a Persian mule, referring to, this was referring to Cyrus, aided by the alliance 
of your one deities and they will bring you into slavery. The joint author will be a Mede in whom the Assyrians glory. Oh, would that before he gave up my citizens to some Charybdis, Charybdis was the name of a legendary sea monster, okay? or that the sea might swallow him up utterly out of sight, or that turning in other directions he might be carried across the desert where there are neither cities nor foot of man, but where wild beasts have pasture and birds in their haunts, that he might wander alone among rocks and ravines, and that before he took such thoughts into his mind, I myself had found a better end. He, Nebuchadnezzar, after uttering this prediction, disappeared. Insanity was described in ancient times as being possessed by a god or a demon. Thus, his disappearance isn't meant to describe a magic trick, but rather that he retreated entirely from public view just all of a sudden. And in this case, no doubt, he was hidden away from the Babylonian citizenry due to his mental illness and his his sudden bizarre behavior. Now the Babylonian writer Barosus, who was a priest of Marduk, wrote in the 3rd century that Nebuchadnezzar fell ill and that this eventually led to his death after 43 years on the throne. And as a number of scholars have pointed out, the cause of death on almost everyone was eventually dying of illness. So there's no point in mentioning getting sick and dying. Thus, to speak of Nebuchadnezzar's illness meant that something serious and out of the ordinary had occurred to him. Now, interestingly, we also find out, according to the Uruk king list of Babylonian and later kings of that region, which was discovered by archaeologists only about 100 years ago, there were some oddities, some, some inconsistencies with the way that Nebuchadnezzar's descendants are listed. Now we're going to discuss this more to begin chapter 5. But the bottom line is that sometimes the numbers of the years of their reigns don't add up. And when that happens, whether in the Bible or just any other ancient documents, it's almost always because there was a co-regency occurring for some period of time. That is, a king and his heir ruled together simultaneously for any number of reasons. This was not at all unusual. In fact, we saw it with David and Solomon. So there is every reason to accept that Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evel Merodach, ruled for a while as a co-regent with his father, under a couple of different circumstances. First, when Nebuchadnezzar went mad, the king's son became the public face of the throne. And then next, after Nebuchadnezzar became well again, his son continued to rule with him as co-regent because it would have been unthinkable to now demote Evil Meridoch after having been the public face of the ruling family for that period of the king's infirmity. And then later, of course, when Nebuchadnezzar died of old age, his son became the sole ruler of Babylon. And if these reasonable suppositions are true, 
It also says that the likely period of the king's insanity was not seven years. Perhaps it was seven months, maybe seven seasons, meaning something closer to two years. Now, I want to close by saying that a spiritually caused mental illness that comes from extreme cases of pride and arrogance and greed are presented in the Bible as with King Saul and Nebuchadnezzar. And we have seen it in modern times as well. But political correctness doesn't usually allow us to label it for what it is. The incredibly wealthy and prideful Howard Hughes went utterly insane for no good physical reason that's ever been discovered. The greater his accomplishments, the greater his arrogance and pride grew, and the more strange and inward he became. He eventually withdrew himself entirely from public view, and he lived out his final days in a Las Vegas hotel room. In fact, the description of his physical appearance, as you see in this picture, is eerily similar to what is ascribed to Nebuchadnezzar as having his hair grow like eagle's feathers and his nails becoming like bird's claws. Then we have Bernie Madoff who stole billions of dollars of people's investments in a Ponzi scheme that ruined the lives of hundreds and hundreds of people. And those nearest to him say he seems to have no remorse for what he's done. It's as though it never happened. He has completely divorced himself from his actions. Perhaps a psychologist would label him a sociopath. But if that's the case, that is a form of mental illness. Now next time, we're going to see that after the divinely appointed time of judgment comes to an end, the king regains his senses. He acknowledges God as the ruler of heaven. And so now he resumes rule over his own kingdom.